Good morning, church. It is good to see all of you this morning. And uh, if you don't know me, my name is Mark, Mark Johnson, and I am uh, privileged and blessed uh, to be able to share the word with you today. I am, I'm excited, but I'm also just thankful that God is gracious to us, that He wants us to know who He is, that He wants us to, to see what He is like and what our response to Him should be uh, through His Word. So it's my pleasure to open this book with you today. And uh, if you are new or haven't been around, we just started a new series last week from the book of Esther called Esther, If It Pleases the King. And I will be teaching from chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Matt started last week in chapters 1 and 2. So if you weren't here to catch you up, basically this book is set during the time where God's people, um, Israel, were under the authority and rule of the Persian Empire. Now, this is about in uh, kind of between 500 and 400 B.C. And, you know, Israel is supposed to be living in their own land. God had given them a special land where he was going to be dwelling with his people. They would be his people. He would be their God. But due to their disobedience, they're exiled to Babylon. That happens in 586 But then, after about 70 years, during Israel's exile, or Judah in particular, if you're you're curious, during the exile, Babylon is conquered by Persia. So Persia is the new authority, and they let some of the Jews go back to their homeland in Israel, but some of them have remained, and they are now living in the Persian Empire, and we were introduced last week to Esther and Mordecai. The Persian king, Ahasuerus, I'm going to try to make sure I get that name right all day today, it's uh, no fun, but... It's, we would know him by the name Xerxes, so whenever you see that, just think Xerxes and the movie 300 and that guy, and that's who we're talking about. In that movie, he's a little over the top, but uh, yeah, in his, history, was a pretty wicked dude. But Ahasuerus, the king, gets upset with his wife when she won't obey uh, and come before him like he wants, and so he's like, all right, you're not queen anymore, I'm going to find a new queen, and basically goes and abducts a whole bunch of pretty young virgin women puts them in his harem and says, I'm going to pick the one that I like the most and she will be my queen. So proceeds to basically rape all of these women. And one of those women is a woman by the name of Esther, a Jew. And Esther has hidden her identity. Nobody knows that she's a Jew at this point. But as we saw last week, that things, this wasn't a great situation. Things aren't looking up for for Esther and God's people. I mean, yes, she wins kind of the contest, if you would call it that. And she's elevated to be queen, But it's not something that we would celebrate and say, yay, good for you. It'd be like, you know, this is sad. Like, I guess you're maybe somewhat better off than everybody else who's not well off that's in the king's harem. But it's a sad situation. She's basically a sex slave to the king. And we're going to pick up the story today in chapter 3, where things go from bad to worse. But I'm excited to be in chapter 3 and chapter 4 because I think there's two things that we see in these chapters that, for me, actually are are quite exciting and encouraging. One, while things are going bad to worse, we see God putting himself on display and showing an aspect of his character to us that he wants us to know about. He gives us great hope. Then he also gives us a very clear example of what it looks like to respond to this attribute and characteristic of God that we're going to see. What it looks like to respond in light of that and be faithful and obedient. So we're going to see some hope and we're also going to see what is our response to that hope. 
And I love that uh, even though God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, he is there clearly and obviously. In chapter 3 and 4, we start to see his hand working in a very present way. Now, I'm glad that uh, we're learning, we're going to be learning these things about who the Lord is and what our response is, because when things go bad for me, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I have a tendency to want to protect what I have. I'm the type of guy, after I leave my car, I push the lock button like five or six times. I want to hear it beat maybe a few times. I'm like, I don't want anybody taking my car. I'm going to lock it, make sure. I'm, I'm going to protect it. I even hate having my, uh, my, my garage door open. Uh, for those of you who know me, I, I love woodworking. I was talking with Kent about this just a few minutes ago. I love woodworking. I've got all my tools in my garage. And although I, I do love my children more than my tools... My tools maybe you know, they're, they're kind of a close second to, to my children. So I don't like leaving my garage door open because I don't want people seeing my tools and saying, oh, I want to run off with that table saw. I mean, it's, it's big. They'd, they'd have trouble doing that. But I, I, I keep my, my door closed because I'm, I'm scared. I, don't, I, I want to keep what I have. I want to cling to it because I'm like, no, you know, if something bad were to happen, it would, you know, I would, it would drive me into despair if, uh, if uh, someone were to take my tools. But we're, we're, we're like that as a people. We are like that. We want to protect what we have. But we're going to see in the scriptures today an irrevocable decree. We're actually going to see two irrevocable decrees that happen. And they intersect with when we are trying to protect things. How do they, what do they do when they interact with those things? So we're going to dive in. We're going to be in Esther chapter 3, as I said. So let's get there together. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So we're actually going to stop right there, because at this point, this is a new character in the story. This guy named Haman. Who is he? Now, when we read the Bible and we encounter these names and we see, you know, this person was the son of this person and blah, 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 we kind of just brush over that. And we're like, ah, whatever. That's not exciting. That's not fun. But the author of, of Esther is actually telling us something very important about this guy, Haman, who's kind of this new main character that's being introduced. Because at this point, we basically have Mordecai and Esther and Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. And so Haman's introduced, and he's called an Agagite. Now, if you were a Jewish reader reading this in Esther's day, you would immediately know what that means. You'd say, oh, I know what an Agagite is, and these are not good people. We're introduced to a guy named Agag back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. And it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, and this is, by the way, back when the kingship was first established in Israel. So this is about 500 years or so prior to what's happening in Esther, but this is what goes on. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Amalek was a group of people, the Amalekites. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took, there it is, Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless 
they devoted to destruction. So they kept all the good stuff for themselves and got rid of all the crap. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. This story ends with Samuel himself actually killing the king, Agag. But that's where this guy comes from. Now, we're not going to go into this passage at all, but I do want to note that the Israelites were supposed to completely annihilate the Amalekites, Agag, the king. Later on, as we're going to see in what we're seeing in Esther, there's an annihilation at hand, but this time for God's people, not Agag. Irony is one of the uh, kind of main literary devices that we find in Esther, and this is going to be one of the things that we see, that one of this group of people that was supposed to be devoted to destruction, in turn, wants to devote in, to destruction God's people. But as soon as we're introduced to Haman, we see Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of this guy. He is not a good dude. So that's who this guy is. So what happens? Back in Esther, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahazuerus. Okay, so we see here, Mordecai makes a decision. He will not bow. Why will we not, he not bow? The author doesn't really tell us, other than he was a Jew. They make it a note. He's not bowing because he's a Jew. Whether that was, there, was, there may have been a worship element going on, and saying, if I bow, I'm, I'm seeking to worship you. We don't know that. It may have just been a, a conscience issue and saying, I'm a Jew, and we aren't supposed to give you any honor. You were suppo you're supposed to be dead. We don't know. But Mordecai takes a stand and says, I will not bow. And they're saying, hey, you're transgressing the king's command. Well, previous to this passage, we saw that Mordecai was loyal to the king. He uncovered a plot, an assassination plot, and he, he basically said, hey, you know, king, watch out. These people are coming for you. So we know that Mordecai is loyal to the king. So this isn't an attempt to kind of stick his finger in the eye of this wicked king who's taken Esther into his harem. No, there's something else going on here. It brings up this issue of of something that we call the Overton window. Um, Overton window is a thing that was um, basically thought up by a guy named Joseph P. Overton back in the 1990s. And he says, he, he describes the Overton window like a ruler. He says, take any, any policy issue that you have in politics, make it uh, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, immigration, healthcare, whatever it is, things that you talk about, and these on this ruler represent all of the possible decisions, left to right, or whatever spectrum you want to use, that you could, could do or make uh, regarding this issue. And he says, there is a window on this ruler, on this scale, of what is acceptable in any society. 
And if, it's, if, this, if a choice lays outside, so this little ruler represents the acceptable things, if it lays outside of here, this is something that society will not do. Let's rewind the clock a little bit, go back to the early 20th century, and eugenics, you know, basically saying we only want the people we like, the people that look like us, the people that have money, we only want them to reproduce. You know, that race of people over there, we don't want, we, no, we don't want any more of them. That was within the window. Americans looked at eugenics and said, yes, this is a good thing. Well, today, it rightfully falls outside of our window. We would say eugenics, absolutely not. And we looked, we discovered, well, we, in World War II, eugenics reached its natural conclusion of the Holocaust, taking a whole group of people and trying to exterminate them. And so we say, oh, eugenics, no, not a good idea. So the window has moved from that time period. And that happens with all of us. And you can take any policy issue, and over time, this window shifts. Well, God, God's window does not shift. It is fixed. God says, I have a way I view the world, and I want you to fall within it as a believer. Mordecai here, in his choice to not bow to Haman, is choosing to do something that lies outside the Overton window of the culture of his day. Everybody around him is bowing down to Haman. He says, no, I will not do that. He says, God's window is over here. I'm going to find myself within it, and I don't care what the consequences are. We find ourselves in that today in all sorts of the issues and uh, problems that we face as a society. We have to make a choice of you know, society says I have to be someplace on this ruler or this yardstick. And we are faced with a choice. Will we bow or not? There's all sorts of things you could think about, whether it's gender pronouns or policy issues or whatever it is, that we have to make choices for in this day and age. What Mordecai is doing seems remarkably foolish. Anybody around him would be like, Mordecai, what? What's wrong with you, bro? Like, just bow down to him. Bad things are going to happen to you. And look what happens. Haman reacts and says, I want to destroy all of these people. I don't want just Mordecai. I want to destroy the entire Jewish nation. But when we're faced with choices like Mordecai was faced with, we tend to not want to go outside of that window. We want to protect what we have. We want to say, you know, that's going to cost me. If I, if I stand up for this, or I say this particular thing, that may cost this relationship I have with this person. I, I take, for example, uh, just me and my family, um, we, we go to a particular restaurant in town quite often on Saturdays uh, for lunch. And at this restaurant, uh, there is a large uh, a number of, uh, of, of transgender people that work there. And, well, one day, uh, and, and we're very friendly with them, and, and uh, we've started to build relationships with uh, a couple of the people that work there, because we, we see them every week. And, well, one day, one person who was coming up and talking to us who worked there, um, our eldest, couldn't tell whether this person was uh, male or female. And so just kind of, as a seven-year-old does, just asks. <laughs> and Rox and I, we're kind of like, ah, you know, that, this, is, uh, this isn't, you know, accepted in our culture to start asking people this. And we kind of had a little moment of, oh, what are we going to do about this? 
Well, thankfully, actually, the person was, was gracious with our daughter and wasn't upset and said, oh, I and, uh, and identified who she was. And it was actually, she was actually um, biologically female. She wasn't trying to, to be something else. Uh, but it even for a moment realized that in, in that moment, my, my wife and I, we were fearful. We were like, what is this going to cost us, even our child, asking this question? Which was an innocent question from a child because she was curious. She wanted to know how to refer to this person. Are you a boy or are you a girl? And, it, and it, it's, it's like, wow, I was so protective that I, I got fearful of just a, of, of, a, of an innocent question from my child. We're afraid that these choices will cost us too much. But we see here that Haman wants to destroy God's people. And we face that in our culture. When we stand up and we start saying particular things in love, in the truth, there will be consequences, just as Mordecai and God's people faced consequences here. So what happens? In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Basically, what they're doing here is they're trying to figure out, hey, when is the best time for Haman to come in front of the king? When's he going to get, you know, when's he going to have the best luck? When, when does everything align to when the things will be good for Haman to make this request of the king to destroy these people? That's all it's doing. This is basically superstition. It's divination. It's practicing astrology. astrology. That's what that is. That's what's going on. And I want you to hold this in the back of your mind to compare it to what's going to happen later on when Mordecai and Esther decide to go before the king. Not just the earthly king, but the heavenly king. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. First off, that's not entirely true. Jewish people were supposed to be the best citizens. Jeremiah commanded them to do that. We looked at that last week, I believe, to seek the welfare of the city. Maybe they didn't worship the king, but everything else, they should have been great citizens. But they are different. God's people are supposed to be set apart. He gives them a set of rules and regulations so that they will be holy, so that they will not look like the people around them. Just as today, we as God's people should not look like the people around us. We should not conform to the culture. And Haman looks at that and says, look, they're different. We need to get rid of them. It doesn't do you any good to have them part of your society. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. That's a lot of money. Into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. What a great title. You know, that's, that's the title you want. Here's this guy. He's the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman bribes the king, and the king basically says, all right, great, thanks for this money. You can take this and destroy those people. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That's the exact opposite of what was supposed to be happening back in 1 Samuel 15. Remember this annihilation of everybody, old and young, women and children. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Guys, we read this. We say, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Lord, how can this happen to your people? This decree is going out to destroy your people. Where are you? Where are you? Annihilation is at hand. These, this, this one guy, this Agagite, is bringing about the complete destruction of God's people. And it's coming because Mordecai was obedient. He said, no, I will not bow. I am part of God's people. I should not bow. Now, we read this and we're like, okay, this seems pretty dire. But it's even more dire than we realize. Last week, we read chapter 1, and this verse was present. It said, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. The Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. We see here, whenever the Persian king decreed something, and he made a law, it was permanent. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? It's that same idea. It cannot be undone. So now we have this decree that says, hey, go annihilate all of God's people. Leave not one. And remember, Persia was huge. The author of Esther makes it a point and says, look, this empire stretches over a huge portion of the world. There's 127 provinces. Every member of God's people within that empire is to be destroyed. And this is coming from an irrevocable decree. God, where are you? Where are you when your people are threatened like this? Where are you? There is an irrevocable decree. But here's the good news and the hope. Our King, our eternal and heavenly King, has also made an irrevocable decree. It does not matter that this earthly King, Ahasuerus, has made this decree because the God in heaven has also made an irrevocable decree. There's a theme in the Old Testament, a word that encapsulates this theme is the word chesed. And we translate it in English either kindness or steadfast love. You're probably familiar with this idea that God has steadfast love. I just will briefly look at uh, Psalm 136. There's even a kind of a cheesy song uh, that, from about 20 years ago that comes from this psalm. It's, Give thanks to the Lord. I don't have it up here on the screen, so just listen. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. It is this, over and over and over again. There's 26 verses. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
And we have the song, his, his love endures forever. You know, that song, and we just keep repeating that over. That, that's where this comes from. It's, it's Psalm 136. But that word, that steadfast love, is this chesed love. And God has said to his people, he has made a decree. He says, I have a covenant with you and I will not let you go. Because of my steadfast love for you. It is permanent. It is unchanging. God has a disposition to his people that cannot be changed because of this covenant. I have a few covenants in my life. One of them is with my mortgage company. When uh, my mortgage company sends me a, a, a bill, an invoice every month for me to pay my, my, my invoice or my, my mortgage payment, I, I do it begrudgingly. I don't do it with great joy saying, here you go. Who's, I can't remember the name of my mortgage company, but here you go. Here you go. Here's my money. I don't do that with a joyful heart. But I'm obligated to fulfill it. I have a covenant with them. I signed the paperwork. They can take my house if I don't pay. But God, in the covenant he has made with his people, does not begrudgingly pay the bills. He does not look to his people and say, well, okay, I made this agreement with you, so I guess, I guess I'm going to pay it. No, this idea of chesed, steadfast love, is a joyful disposition of the Lord to continually cling to his people and say, I will not let you go. You see, Mordecai and Esther would have known the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are pretty miserable. There's some glimpses of hope in there. But then the tone shifts in chapter 40. And not that there still isn't hard stuff from chapters 40 to 66, but God starts talking about something that's glorious and wonderful. He starts talking about, a, I'm going to use a big word, a glorious eschatological restoration. Eschatological just means end times. He says, look, I'm going to restore you as my people. This glorious eschatological restoration. And this restoration, this idea, stretches through the rest of the prophets they speak to this time when God is going to come and restore his people and everything will be made right. His people will no longer be disobedient. That was a theme that goes throughout the prophets as well. You see that, that his people keep not getting it right. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The rest of the book of Isaiah kind of hits on a lot of these themes. We see a lot of themes that speak to Christ. We know that he is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. We'll look at that later. Isaiah 62 kind of captures some of this pretty well. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Guys, this 
is the irrevocable decree. That God has promised His people that when Mordecai and Esther were, were faced with this decree from Ahasuerus and Haman, they'd be like, Lord, what about this decree? What about this thing that you have said in Isaiah and all of the prophets up until that point? What about this promise that you have made us? So let's see what they actually say. Esther chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. It looked kind of ugly. They didn't want that kind of hanging around. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to see Mordecai's posture here. It is one of sorrow and lament of great pain and distress. He's coming before the Lord and he's not saying, Lord, you owe us. He's not saying, but you promised. That drives me nuts. As soon as my kids, you know, you've, you've maybe said something to them and they're like, but you promised. It's like, well, I haven't promised now. <laughs> like, as soon as that attitude comes out with this demanding expectation. No, what do Mordecai and his people do? They come with mourning and repenting and submission, and they say, Lord, have mercy on us. That is what this posture shows. It is not saying, Lord, what are you doing here, God? Come on, be who you promised. It's saying, Lord, we are at your mercy. Will you remember us in your favor, in your chesed, this disposition you have towards us? Will you remember us? Not you promised, but Lord, you promised. Have mercy on us, sinful people. I want to contrast what they're doing here to what Haman did back when he was casting lots. Haman's trying to manipulate the situation. That's what non-believers, what pagan people do. We try to, and, and honestly, quite often as believers, we do this as well. We try to manipulate circumstances. We try to say, okay, when's the best time to do this? Okay, I'm going to I'm going to you know, cast lots. I'm going to read this, the stars. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to figure out what's best this way. And just, instead of just coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. One is a posture of surrender. The other one is saying, I'm actually trying to control this. I'm not actually surrendered to anything. Just rolling dice. Two very different displays of how to approach the divine. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Esther's reaction is pretty curious. She's not distressed because of the edict, which apparently she doesn't know about. She's distressed because of what Mordecai is doing. She's like, Mordecai, you're embarrassing yourself. Stop it. What are you doing? And we can do that often when people within the Christian community start standing up for things or start doing things, you know, again, this Overton window, when they start doing things that are outside what our culture and society says is okay. We're like, hey, uh, 
You're not really supposed to wear sackcloth. You're not supposed to mourn like that. What are you doing? And that's Esther's first response. She's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Whoa, don't, don't be doing this, Mordecai. You look pretty ridiculous. That's her heart right now. And I love this because in Scripture, with a lot of the people we meet, there's growth, there's character development, and we're going to see some. All right, so let's see what Mordecai says. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Mordecai says, here's what's going on. Hathak, will you go tell Esther to go talk to the king? She's the queen. Will you tell her to go? To use her position, her influence, her authority, the place that... God above has placed her. Will you tell her to go on our behalf? So now we're going to see what is Esther's response to these realities. She's now confronted with the truth. She's going to be confronted with the truth that God's people are going to be destroyed. It's her response. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther's, Esther's hesitant. She says no. She's like, uh, Mordecai, I don't know you, if you know this, but uh, that may put my life in jeopardy, so no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm sorry that this thing is happening, but that's a big cost that you're asking me to potentially pay. I don't know if I'm willing to pay with my life. And that's our reaction too, isn't it? We have the exact same response. When that pressure hits, we're like, ooh, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so, Lord. That's going to cost me for me to do that. For me to say that thing? Ooh. For me to talk to this person about who you are? Mm, I don't know, Lord. For me to declare this truth about you? For me to tell the world what you're like? Count me out. Count me out. That is our heart. We say, how will this affect me? Not, what does the Lord require of me? Let's see what Mordecai says. And this is about to be pretty much my favorite book, or my favorite part of the whole book, and also it's becoming one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Wouldn't you love to be the, the, just the guy running back and forth, you know, carrying on this conversation? Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such time as this. Now, 
This may be a famous phrase to you or familiar if you've grown up in the church, this such a time as this. And we're going to look at that, but I actually love what happens right before this. When Mordecai references something in particular, he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews. They will rise for God's people. Where is he getting that from? The promises of Isaiah. The promises of the prophets. He knows that God's people won't be exterminated because God has promised to do something through them. Looking back, we know this couldn't have happened because Jesus Christ, God's provision for the world, comes through God's people. And so we have here, Mordecai is demonstrating great faith in that irrevocable decree of the king. He says deliverance is coming. And Esther, whether you are a part of it or not, it will happen. And we are faced with that same question. Do we believe that deliverance will rise? It can either come through us or it will come from somewhere else. But it is not a question of whether deliverance will rise. It is not a question of whether the gospel will go into all corners of the world. It is not a question if God's glory will be declared and proclaimed in all of the world. The question is, are we going to be a part of it? In your corner of the world, are you going to be a part of it? You have been placed with people around you, your co-workers, your family, your friends, your neighbors. You are there in the same way that Esther was placed, right where she was. And the question is, do I see these people who are facing destruction? Because we are. Everyone is faced with destruction if we are not found in Christ Jesus. Will you be a part of the rescue plan? Let's see what, has to sit, what happens. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther here also demonstrates great faith. She says, I believe that God's going to rescue his people, and I want to be a part of that. You see, God's rescue plan, his deliverance, that irrevocable decree on behalf of his people, is based on his promise and not on our behavior. So the deliverance for the Jews does not happen because Esther agrees to do this. It happens through Esther's decision to do this. God's deliverance, deliverance of us is not because of our behavior. His acceptance of us into his family is not because of our behavior and the good things that we do. It's because of his promise to save us. It's through what he has done on the cross. I love Esther the response that she has, if I perish, I perish. So often my heart is not that. I think, oh, well, if I perish, that's awful. But she's like, no, if I perish, I perish. She's looking to a heavenly kingdom. She's looking and saying, I know that God has promised a restoration, a glorious eschatological restoration. I love that phrase. Because it's true. It's what God promises us in his scripture. Now, I want to tie this back more into what Jesus has to say and see how this promise, because it's one thing to read Isaiah and be like, okay, 
Isaiah is written to God's people, the Jewish people, at a particular time. How does this apply to us? Well, Jesus applies all of that to himself. In the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it says this, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. We just read part of this in Isaiah 40, but also we read this a couple weeks ago in Malachi chapter 3. What Mark is doing here is he takes... Uh, he takes basically this promise that we find in Isaiah, and then he goes to all the way to the last prophet of Malachi. So we have Isaiah to Malachi, all the prophets that all speak of this glorious eschatological restoration, and he smushes it all together in one statement, and he says, look, all this promise that God gave us in all the prophets, it's coming true in Christ. So that's what's happening at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And if you read any of the gospels, they keep talking about these prophecies and they refer to this restoration that God will bring and they say, this is it in Christ. So when we read Isaiah and we read those promises, the same promises that Esther and Mordecai would have clinged to, we can cling to them as well. We're given an even fuller picture than Mordecai and Esther had. We have Revelation. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Way better than just rebuilding the, the walls with Nehemiah or the temple with Ezra, but we have the New Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. They're an irrevocable command or decree. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, of the water of life without payment. This is what we have. These are the promises that we can cling to. We have the full picture. Better than just a nation state where God would come and, and live just in the confined place of a temple. But we have. Life with God himself. Deliverance will rise for us, God's people. When we are faced with these situations in our lives where we have to ask the question, am I going to do something that will cost me? Am I going to say something that will cost me? Am I going to say or do something in this relationship that may make them turn against me as I seek to share Christ with them? And it may cost me. Am I willing to do it because I know that there is a promise that is better? They can take my life. They can take my house. They can take the relationships that I have. But they cannot take my soul. They cannot take my future because God has given a decree that says, no, this is what is promised. If I believe that, then I can step forward in faith and I can say, if I perish, I perish. I can go to my coworkers around me and I can say, can I tell you about Jesus? And it's good news. Yes, there is sad news of you are under death and judgment and condemnation. But there is good news that God loves you and has provided you with an escape. Not only just an escape, but full life. Not just getting away from the bad, but in, an invitation into the full good. We long to be in this place of restoration, don't we? We all know within our soul that something is deeply broken with us in the world. 
And we long to say, I want that restoration. And God says, it will come. If you are in Christ and you trust him for your death, for, for trust him in his death for your sins, then we have that life. And it will drive us. If I understand this truth, and I understand that it is solid, it will change the way I interact with the world around me. I will not care the, about the consequences that it brings down on me or even the consequences it may bring on God's people. I work in ministry, as many of you know. It is so tempting to keep my mouth shut, not for my own sake, but for the people that work around me. I see that all around me. It's like, oh, what, how, are, how are they going to be viewed? That's the tendency. I see it even in my bosses. They try to protect me and the things that I do and the way that they talk. We have this natural bent of I want to protect. But if I really understand that it, what I have is being protected, guarded in heaven, it's imperishable, it's guarded by the Lord, it doesn't matter. I can't lose it. The Lord will use us to save his people. I have one example, and then I'll wrap up. One of my heroes is a guy named Adoniram Judson. It's a fun name, Adoniram. He's often thought of as the first Protestant American missionary. It's actually not true. He was not the first. He was the second. Um, but besides that, that's not important. But uh, when he was asking for um, his first wife's hand in marriage, his first wife eventually died. Her name was Anne. He was asking his, uh, Anne's father for her hand in, in marriage. And Adoniram had a desire to go to India to share the gospel with the people there. He actually ended up in Burma. And because of Adoniram uh, and Anne's efforts there, there's actually a Christian community in Burma today that traces its heritage back to Adoniram Judson. He's such a hero of mine that if our new baby had been a boy, I was going to name him Adoniram. Um, Rocks contests that, but um, I think I would have won the day. So Adoniram Judson, this is him writing to his father-in-law, asking for her hand in marriage. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Sorry, I think of my own daughters. And if somebody came and asked me of this, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means, not by her means, but through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Almost everything he wrote about happened to Anne. Almost all of this happened to her. But he was so gripped by the reality that these things were true and that the promises of God were irrevocable and that he would go and save his people. He said, it is worth it, that all of these things are worth it. And he was asking his future father-in-law, is it worth it to you to part with your daughter for her to go and do this? By the grace of God, his father-in-law said yes. And Adam and Iram and Anne set off to India. They ended up in Burma. 
And from there, shared the gospel with many. And many are rejoicing in heaven and will be rejoicing in heaven through the efforts of Adoniram and Ann. How are we as a church stepping out in faith? How are we as foot of the cross church stepping out in faith? Are we taking risks for the kingdom? Are we sacrificing our prestige, our wealth, our opportunities, and Lord willing, our very lives? Or are we comfortable and say, I want to stay here with what I have? The message is not, be like Esther. The message is, Esther's God is our God. Our tendency is to be like Esther in that we want to protect what we have. But our God says, no, I have promised more. And it may be hard. If we perish, we perish. We may face death and destruction. But his decree is irrevocable. Thank you.